0: data from a marketing perspective is the context so it's not just the sales data it's not just the numbers that roll to reporting it's how can we put context in a structured consistent way that we can then use it to automate personalized relationships at scale
1: you are listening to the let's talk marketing podcast hosted by me katya allison so what have you gotten yourself into In short, it's going to be a good time. We're going to have great conversation. And you know what? There's going to be a little bit of learning along the way. Through insightful interviews with top marketers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders, I get to explore the latest trends, techniques, and strategies in this wonderful world of marketing. I'm here to offer you all engaging and informative discussions to really kind of stay up to date on the latest trends and take your marketing skills to the next level. In this episode, we are covering Building Your Database for Effective Marketing with Lauren Ryan. Now, Lauren is the founder and chief marketing nerd (laughs) of Coastal Consulting. She is on a mission to build a bridge between HubSpot and Salesforce for teams using HubSpot Salesforce integration through education and training. Now, she specializes in database management, marketing automation and technology, and sales and marketing alignment. So let's get ready for it. Let's Talk Marketing with Lauren Ryan. Lauren, welcome to the Let's Talk Marketing podcast. I've got the name of my podcast correct this time, so that's good. I'm really happy to have you on so that we can just dive into some marketing talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. So let's have the audience get to know you a little bit better. What I always like to start off with is where did you get started in marketing and where you're at now? So it was your first marketing role, or at least what you would consider a marketing role?
0: So I had a few internships in college, but my first full-time marketing role was as a trade show analyst for an international logistics company. So it was honestly an amazing job for a 21-year-old. I was able to travel across the U.S. I managed about 70 trade shows a year and attended about 20 or 30 of those. So I was always on the road and traveling, and that was my foray into marketing. I know that life very well. What is your current role? And is it in marketing? Yeah. So currently I'm the founder and chief marketing nerd of coastal consulting. So almost three years ago, I started my own agency, helping teams with the HubSpot Salesforce integration. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of marketing for myself as far as marketing my company, but my main job role is in database management, technology management, and helping marketers actually market to their target audiences through their database and the data they're collecting.
1: And we are going to dive so deep into that. It is definitely a topic that's close to my heart and I don't think is close enough to a lot of other people's hearts within an organization. (laughs) Now about what it is that you currently do, what do you love about what you do? But on the converse side, if there's anything that I could pluck out of your job that you would want to and you'd you'd say, this is perfect, what would that be? So let's start with the positive. What do you love about what you currently do?
0: I love content creation and education. So I've been doing so much like LinkedIn content. I've created a course on the HubSpot Salesforce integration. That's like 80 videos talking about everything I do and how to do this. And I really am leaning more into that and more away from services. So leaning towards the content creation piece. If there's anything I could pluck out, it would be the need to be in meetings. And <laughs> I love helping clients. So it's like, it doesn't really agree. It's kind of, I don't know, doesn't make sense. But I do enjoy talking to them and helping them, but I don't enjoy days where I'm just back to back with meetings. So if I could take out obligatory meetings, that would be great.
1: <laughs> it is very much so a double-edged sword. Like You need to have the meetings in order to discuss things and fig- and have that conversation, but then you can't have so many meetings that there is literally no time to get anything done. So I can completely understand that would be something I would want to pluck out as well too. The unnecessary meetings. It makes me think of that mug. I'm sure that you've seen it. Like this meeting could have been an email. That's what it always makes me think about. Is there another way that we can do this? Now in the world of marketing though, there are a lot of channels. I immediately start to think about like just the digital channels, especially how marketing has evolved. And I'm curious as to whether or not you leverage social media platforms to either get inspired for education or entertainment? It already sounds like you leverage LinkedIn from an education standpoint. Is that all you use LinkedIn for? And do you use other just social media platforms only?
0: So LinkedIn, I use for posting educational content about what I do and also lead gen, just as far as people seeing us on there and coming in from that direction. Personally, I use TikTok a lot (laughs) for mental health and just scrolling to wind down at the end of the day. I'm also creating a channel for my new corgi puppy. So we'll see if she makes me so I don't have to have a job anymore. Uh. <laughs> I think it's every dog owner's dream, right? <clears throat>
1: they have such
0: personality. It's so we'll see. But yeah, I use LinkedIn primarily for any sort of work-focused communication. I'm not on X or Twitter. I'm not on Facebook from a work perspective. So LinkedIn's really where it's at for me.
1: I think that's exactly where my jam is too. Now, how do you stay up to date on trends? We've talked about social media, but is there a newsletter, a podcast, a website, a person maybe that you stay connected with to stay up to date on the things that are changing so quickly, it feels.
0: The biggest trend shifts that I pay attention to is the conversations I'm having with clients. I'm usually having like 10 to 15 conversations with potential clients every month. And the trends that I'm focused on are the problems they're trying to solve. And so at different times of the year that changes. So really I'm hearing that directly from my customers, but on LinkedIn and part of the, like I'm deeply ingrained of in the HubSpot community. So filing Kyle Jepsen specifically on LinkedIn for HubSpot stuff, he's great. And then just the other agency owners and people like me who are out there posting what they're hearing from their clients. So LinkedIn and then my direct conversations. Is there a consistent trend
1: that you find your customers are talking about right now, like in the last, I don't know, maybe six months?
0: Yeah. Something that I've noticed is people are really trying to consolidate their tech stack. So Mm -hmm. the people that I work with use Salesforce as their CRM and HubSpot for marketing, but HubSpot is also a CRM. So the reason that I help people is because you need to integrate two CRMs to use that integration well, and that's where I help. But people are looking to, okay, what can HubSpot replace? And so a big thing that I've been doing is pulling people like off of Calendly to put them on HubSpot meetings or off of sales lofts to get on HubSpot sequences. So what I'm, trying, what I'm seeing right now is people are tightening spending as far as the software costs. And they're looking at, okay, where can we consolidate? Where are we paying for the same thing in more than one place? That is so true.
1: I think I'm always consistently looking for that. There's never like this one magic platform, but there are a lot of platforms that can do about 90% of what it is that you're looking for. And then the rest, you just have to be okay with like, I may be having to grab things from other places. So that completely makes sense. So I'm ready to dive into what we came here to talk about, which was really building that strong database to support marketing. I'm going to hit you with a hot one at first, right? I'd love for you to be able to describe your approach to just designing and integrating data from marketing purposes. What does that even mean? Because I think a lot of people assume while I'm getting their names, then I can just, that's my database, right?
0: But I know very well, as you do, that there's more to that. For sure. I think that the old way of looking at marketing and email marketing is a quote unquote spray and pray approach where you get an email list and you email them and odds are somebody on that needs to hear your message. And that doesn't work anymore (laughs) at all. And so whenever you're looking at building a marketing database, it's really figuring out what does a personal relationship mean for you and your company and how can you use data to create one? So everything I've been is looking for this personalized approach to marketing these days, right? If you look at the Amazon effect and what people are expecting of companies is higher, regardless of where you're at. So when you're looking at a marketing focused database, we're looking for context that we know about this customer, like what context can we build on in marketing messages? So personalization is not just a merge tag for first name anymore. It's understanding what products they've looked at, what they already have and anticipating their next move and their next interest. Like when I worked at a credit union in the past, we used data from our clients of, okay, they have a car loan with us, they're most likely to get a house next. Or if they have a credit card, the next likely financial product is a car loan. So if we can start using what we know about them and buyer behavior that we've analyzed in our database, we can start contextually marketing. And so data from a marketing perspective is the context so it's not just the sales data it's not just the numbers that roll up to reporting it's how can we put context in a structured consistent way that we can then use it to automate personalized relationships at scale
1: so I'd love to double click on that a little bit because everything that you're saying completely makes sense, right? We want to take a look at the context. Your example is spot on. I think that ideally most brands, companies, whatever, are looking for that insight. I want to know if they, and I'll use my own example, if they watch this webinar, are they more likely to? So how do we set that up or what is it that we need to set up in order to get like the context of what? you had just described in your example and what I just articulated as well.
0: So I think there's different tools that are designed to help with that. I know in HubSpot, they have attribution reporting, which has been really helpful to start looking at attribution models and where certain marketing assets fall in. Like you can look at the attribution of a specific webinar all the way to revenue using HubSpot's reporting. So that's one way that I help clients do that. And whenever you're using the HubSpot Salesforce integration, you have to create those deals in HubSpot to get that attribution data. So that's something else I've helped people with. But when it comes to figuring out that trend, it's highly industry specific. So sometimes in your industry, there's a standard study that says this is what's likely. So in the credit union, we were actually handed a sheet that says, hey, in our industry, it's likely that if they have a credit card with you, they'll do this next. So that was really helpful to have somebody say, this is the trend. (laughs) But when it comes to figuring out your own approach, it's really testing. So looking at, if you do A-B testing of, okay, if I get 500 leads a month, I'm going to put 250 towards a webinar series and 250 towards an ebook series. And then based off of that, convert and then you essentially just take those numbers and continue to test and test and loading up the most optimized path but it's really building quality content (laughs) and then testing paths if you don't have an industry standard for what is next best you need to figure that out within your own database through testing and then use a database or a platform that has the ability to store that context so you can then leverage it again in the future
1: so, I'm obsessed with what you just said in regards to testing if you don't have that baseline. And I'm leading the witness here <laughs> because. I fully believe in it, but I'm in marketing, right? I'm a marketer and I take a look at the numbers and I know that things take time, but I often think that when it comes to being able to articulate that to either executive leadership internally or you probably from an agency perspective, you have to be able to educate that leadership or the buying committee on, hey, it's going to take X amount of time if I'm creating this database, right? So how do you educate people on the length of time or is there a length of time that you can educate them on when it comes to what it takes to build that good marketing database that has the context that you're talking about?
0: I typically am working with an informed marketer. So usually my clients are able to make that argument, which is good. And sometimes they bring me in just to champion that argument louder internally. But for me, the expectations I set is whatever you're starting with is what you have. There's two ways to get more. There's one, there's time and test, or two, pay for it to get it now. Some clients will use things like Zoom Info Insights to then, it costs a lot, but you're able to get that intent data to see, okay, Zoom Info says it looks like they're going to buy a new CRM software soon. So you get that like hand raised to go talk to that person. So you can get some context faster, but it's not homegrown. So you don't know how reliable it is and you don't know how soon that's happened. So it's whatever reliability you get whenever you pay for it. But for me, like, it depends on the volume of testing more so than the timeline. So if you have 200,000 contacts, you could probably get some pretty reliable test data in a few months. Whereas if you're just starting a database, it'll probably take you a year or more because you have to build that volume of people who've seen it to have statistical significance. Because if you're just testing on a sample size of five, there's really nothing (laughs) that you can pull from that. But if you have a really large database, you can send out a series of emails over the next two months and get statistically significant results and how people have engaged with it. If you can't get the direct context of, oh, they have from saying they're interested in buying our software, they may have clicked on an ebook, watched a webinar, downloaded something, engaged on social media. You can use these different points to infer product interest rather than getting that express statement of, hey, sales, I'm interested in this. And then you can move them down the pipeline to then engage on that context you've been collecting through the marketing engagements. That's why having a connected CRM is really important to be able to get those data points in an actionable way.
1: Yeah. So you're able to track things all the way down to the closed one. I think that's the sweet spot that everybody wants to get to and then evaluate what your win rate is. And you need a solid database that's fully integrated in order to do that. Now we've talked about context. We've talked about what needs to be set up and testing and then collecting the data. I want to ask you a little bit more about the collection of data and what, how you help people balance the CAN spam or the GDPR when building out a database. Because I know that you know, I sit in the marketing seat all the time and you always work really closely with sales and everyone gets those emails, right? Get this list. There's 10,000 people. And from a salesperson, that's really sexy. Those are like, that's 10,000 people that I have access to, but it's not always the quantity. It's the quality of them too. And you want to make sure that they raise their hands. So how do you balance that can spam and GDPR when you're building out your database?
0: So I'm super strict on data privacy laws. Like I am like very big on we are going to follow this. If I work with you, you're going to follow this. So I have it in my contracts actually like explicitly stating this language because I'm so big on it. I remember that I started in marketing when GDPR was first released and I was like militant about it. It was so fun. <laughs> you <laughs> now.
1: but <laughs> You have to be as a marketer. I think I, I talked to my team and we're incredibly passionate about it. I'm like, no, I cannot reach out to them. You can. You are an individual person, but we cannot market to them. They have not given us their consent. So that's also why I ask about that.
0: So what I do in order to bring sales and marketing together on that point is I create a landing page or say, okay, if you're going to reach out to these people, what's the context of how you got the list? And if you don't want to share the how you got the list, what is the reason? Like These are SaaS people who work in manufacturing. What is the audience here? And then I will create a landing page that has a form with a consent checkbox that's about a certain offer. So I'll tell them, hey, you can email them one-on-one and tell them about this ebook or schedule a meeting or whatever the call to action is that makes sense. And then I give them a way to get that marketing opt-in to get them in the CRM and the sales team can take whatever list they get and email them one-on-one. But until they actually submit that form and that person opts in, then we're not adding them to the database. Or we're not adding them to the marketable database so i enable the sales team to do these outbound campaigns to give them what they need to work a trade show list or whatever but we're not adding them to the marketing list or making them a marketing contact until they've submitted a form and given us explicit consent and opt-in
1: i like that and i think it's a really clean way to get the people who truly are interested versus the people who are either tire kickers and you used an event as an example and i think especially for an event i think People go to booths and they get scanned and everybody wants the tchotchkes and the free stuff, but they don't really want to get it in their email box. So don't overinflate your numbers.
0: The biggest pushback on that is always, that's a lot of work. They're going to have to submit a form. They might not want it that bad. And I'm like, well, if they don't want it that bad, then they can't be in our database. I know. (laughs) Because you don't want people in your database that don't want what you have.
1: That's absolutely true. I always feel like even with unsubscribes, and this is probably not the most popular opinion, but if someone unsubscribes, I'm like, good, you're cleaning my list for me. As long as the number isn't too high that there's a flag of unsubscribe, that's what I'm getting for. And I think a lot of times you have to clean up whatever. Ideally, if you're a marketer and you're coming into a business, you are helping and part of the process of building out that database. But more than likely, our listeners are people who are They have what they have because they've walked into the middle of this. So they may not know the history of what this database is, right? Not what the database is, but where it all came from. First of all, do you run into that? And if you do, how do you ensure like kind of data accuracy and consistency? Is it something like that, the landing page that you just stated as an example for your first sentence, scrub up and clean up your list? Or do you have other tactics for data accuracy and consistency?
0: Whenever I'm working with someone, and this is a big trigger for someone to reach out to me, is they're brand new to their job. They were hired to come in and fix HubSpot and Salesforce, reintegrate marketing, what have you. And so they're plopped into a HubSpot account that they've had no influence on up until now. So it's probably a disaster for several reasons. So what I typically recommend they do is go through NeverBounce or something like that and just go ahead and do a list validation of all the emails on their list. And what a program like that does, it essentially says, no, this email is no longer active or this is a spam trap or whatever. It will tell you with a certain degree of accuracy, like all of the emails in your database, if they're sendable or not. And whenever you are brand new to a database, I go off that score. Unless I have a verified yes from one of those platforms, like this is still in use, not a maybe, a full on yes, (laughs) then I won't send them a marketing email. So what I do is I typically take that list of my yeses that I have that are subscribed to my database and I do a re-engagement campaign. And so this is an one marketing email, maybe two, that says, hey, haven't heard from us in a while. Just checking back in. Can you reconfirm that you want to hear from us? And it can be more enticing like that. Like we have a new ebook, download it, whatever. And if they don't at least open that email, then like I stop emailing them. I put them on a suppression list. I don't delete them or unsubscribe them or anything like that, but I put them on a suppression list to like keep them off to the side in case they re-engage in the future. But I then start to build my active and engaged marketing list from that re-engagement campaign.
1: I would imagine running a tactic in that way improves your email metrics.
0: significantly.
1: Significantly. Right? Like open rate, click through rate, because then you're like truly weeding out the people who are not interested in them. I also love that you're saying that it's more than one email in this re-engagement. Can you unpack for the listeners why it would be more than one email
0: that you would want to put in something like that? So it depends on how much you trust your database. So if you know that you're coming into an account where they've purchased a ton of lists and uploaded them, cool. Let's only send one email because these people likely never gave us their opt-in anyway. Like we don't want to be barked to spam. If it's a database where they used to have some forms, people have filled them out over time. They just haven't been talked to or addressed in a long time. If it's just sat there for a year and no one's talked to them, I'm okay with sending them a one, two, three emails. As long as we know that they did come into this database at some point, we just don't know that they're active or care now. Because honestly, if you're interested in like a software, it's not very likely you're still interested in it a year later, unless you are a large like enterprise company that takes that long to make a buying decision. Like- interest fades. So if they wanted your product a year or two ago, they likely don't now. It's not just engaging interest in like, are you still interested in our brand? It's also like, is this still something that's on the table for you? Because if they came into your funnel a year ago and you've given them the interest markers, but you haven't done anything with that until now, that's super stale data. I would not send more than one email unless I could trust that it wasn't from a purchase list. If it's not from a list, I could send two to three just to say, Hey, don't know if you saw the last one. Here's an additional offer or a different type of thing. So you send three things where it increases at in value in each time and see if they engage in any of that. I love that. See, and you're dropping all of these like email marketing
1: insights as well too. I feel like email marketing is like the unsung hero of marketing. It doesn't cost it doesn't have the cost of so many of the other tactics as well too. And you're working with the people that have already in theory, have shown some sort of interest. So I love that. Now, in your opinion, what are the most important metrics to track within a marketing database? And how do you ensure that you're affectionate, eff- affectionately, that you can't affectionately do it, but effectively captured and analyze that information? So what are the most important metrics for you to track? Is it first name, last name, company? And I'm sure that it varies based on industry. But I would imagine that there are some
0: core things that can really help you. So if I'm tracking like marketing performance, the biggest things that I track is marketing sourced opportunities, marketing sourced revenue. And then I typically go by like attribution for activities. So I'll look at a workflow series and look at overall how many customers this generate? Like my focus is really on bottom of the funnel metrics. I don't do a lot of focus on top of funnel. When it comes to like database quality, if I'm looking at metrics from that perspective, I'm looking at bounce rate, unsubscribe rate. If you're using HubSpot specifically, they have an email health score where it can go break down everything for you. I'm obsessed with looking at that with my clients because it gives you something to work towards and have benchmark data. Like you can get a data box, like being able to see how you compare to others is so helpful. But yeah, I'm really looking at that marketing generation, like contribution to the full picture of the business because at this point in a lot of these conversations, there's not much conversation or room for anything else than marketing actually contributing to the bottom line. And marketing has very much taken over a lot of sales because a lot of people are just point and click selling. There's not a big sales process in a lot of companies now. So your ability to drive revenue as a marketing leader is so important
1: now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on leveraging your database for remarketing and like what is the best execution for something like that?
0: I am not an expert in remarketing. So I'll definitely throw that one out there. But what I think is really valuable is if they visit a high value page to follow them on social, I think that's what I've heard being the most successful. So if they go to my services page, if I had the budget to follow them on social, (laughs) that's what I would do. (laughs) And retarget with LinkedIn content is really what I would do. But I think that retargeting should be focused on specific pages all too many times people don't exclude like potential hires or competitors, stuff like that, from their targeting and waste their ad spend. So I think retargeting from that perspective, what I can do retargeting wise is via email marketing. So with HubSpot and no ad spend, like my website is built on HubSpot and I use HubSpot for marketing automation. So what I can do is whenever they revisit a service pages, like I can trigger an email to them to say, Hey, schedule a call or something like that. So I really do my remarketing based off of web page visits. I love
1: that. And I think that's really great advice. Hopefully listeners are jotting those down or waiting for the key takeaways at the end of it. Now you've shared so much information with us and I really appreciate that. I've got one final question for you before we completely close everything out. And that is, if you knew then what you know now, what is the marketing, personal, professional advice that you give yourself? It's choose your own adventure and how you answer that.
0: There's so many things that I've learned, but I think the biggest thing that I've learned the past few months is I would have started putting a lot more on LinkedIn a lot sooner. I think that applies to more platforms too. But I think that the biggest way that we connect now as people is through knowledge sharing and learned lessons, just like we're doing in this question. And I think that it would have been so cool to have documented my journey earlier on LinkedIn. And I have gotten so much from that community and given so much to that community. And I wish I would have started that sooner.
1: That's really great advice. And you're right. Like I think it's so much easier to listen to somebody sharing this story than a brand specifically telling you about how great they are. Of course, they're going to say that they want to sell something. I cannot thank you enough for coming on here and just sharing your knowledge. I think that there were a lot of insights that were shared as well too. I just really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. One of my favorite parts. I've got some key takeaways for you today. My first key takeaway is personalization is important in marketing. Now, personalization is something we hear about often in marketing. We want to be sure to really craft the right experience for those we're working on moving down the funnel to purchase. The use of data to create that personalized journey or experience is key to that. This requires that your CRM is set up to connect to these data points throughout the journey. While I feel strongly that this is something you need throughout the funnel, I know Lauren is really focused on that bottom of funnel. And it's not that I don't think that that's valuable. Of course it is. I think it's something that you should be working towards to make bottom of funnel impactful. So during this episode, it was very focused on bottom of funnel, but no, like you should be collecting data points as soon as they walk through the door. Now, number two, key takeaway number two, in short, it is testing, testing, and testing. An area that we both really agreed on is, you've got it, testing. You have to test to gather data and also to get quality data. If you don't have an industry standard to measure yourself against, you need to figure out what your own standard is, which you can only do by gathering enough data. Now, this involves a healthy amount of testing. A great example of testing and getting data from it is in email marketing. I believe, if memory serves me right, she had an email example or she shared with us an email example. So let's say that the group that you send an email to, let's say someone doesn't open them email or they unsubscribe, knowing that they're just not into you tells you something. So take a look at the story behind your data. It could just be that the message you sent doesn't resonate. What if you made tweaks and resent it? Test, test, and test again. Now, That being said, in the example that I just gave, I'm not implying that you should reach out to someone that has unsubscribed. This is more if they didn't open or click that call to action in your email. So test things out. And the last key takeaway, privacy laws matter. This is short and sweet. Privacy laws matter. This is GDPR. It's the can spam and everything else that comes up. Built that into an opt in option for you, right? You have to follow the letter of the law. I emphasize this because every once in a while I get that, but does it really matter? And in short, it does think of the annoying calls you get on your phone that you don't want. So don't be that person. That's all I'm saying. Now, I would love to hear the nuggets of insights that you all pulls from this episode. Please share them on LinkedIn, engage with us, subscribe and follow on LinkedIn, also on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. A special thank you to my podcast producers, the amazing team at Content Allies, and thanks to you for spending your time with me today. Until next time, may the conversation flow, the laughter linger, and the outlook remain optimistic but grounded in reality. This is Katya signing off.